All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. very rare opportunity to be in a situation that's post-conflict um, and look at the reconstruction of an educational system. I developed a skill I never knew that I needed or I never knew that I had, where I often manipulated how I, ident- how I self-identified in order to work with the people that I had to work with. What they were saying to me is you need to be more neutral we are going to deliver these trainings in English. There's an interpreter. We have to be neutral in this whole situation. And I beg to differ. And I, I don't think that neutrality is possible when we're engaging in education, when we're engaging in language training. I started teaching in 1998, which was still at the height of the Balkan Wars. And I walked into the classroom and I simply wrote my full name on the board. And I hadn't written up the agenda yet and I hadn't unpacked my photocopies yet. And a student got up and said to me, I'm sorry, but you can't be my teacher. And she said, I left my country to get away from people like you. Teacher Talking Time is created with support from you, our listeners. If you like the show, you like what we do, please subscribe in your favorite app, tell a friend, and leave us a review. Believe us, it goes a long way. If you're interested in contributing to the creation of the show, we also have a tip jar on Patreon. The link to that, all our social media, and our website is in the show notes. For more resources on today's topic, you can check out our podcast page online, learnyourenglish.net slash podcast. Thanks for listening. And now, back to the show. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Angela from Columbus, Ohio, and you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Okay, and a big welcome today to the show to Anna Maria Petrunik, who is the chair of the School of ESL at Toronto's George Brown College. Previous to that, she spent more than a decade with the University of Calgary, serving roles as instructor, professional development advisor, and in education management. One of her areas of focus is how language, identity, and culture intersect and impact education, and Anna Maria's master's thesis from the University of Calgary is entitled Multiple Acts of Identification Among Educators in a Post-Conflict Situation, Evidence from Kosovo, which is the focus of this episode. Anna Maria, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. All right, we're very excited about this episode, and I'm excited to hear and to tell this story, and I hope it generates a lot of discussion about it. It's a little bit different than something we usually talk about on the show, but I think it's a really important one, especially in a time that we're living right now. 
Um, a quick question off the top for you, because in our correspondence previous to this interview, you described yourself as having, quote, lived experience of suspended identity, which I thought was a really impactful statement. Perhaps maybe you could unpack that a little bit before, for us before we get into, into the Kosovo story. Mm -hmm. So my academic research and um, current research really does focus on identity formation in its different forms. It's something that I've always been very curious about. And uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about it in terms of my own practice and the teaching and learning spaces that I inhabit. So what I will probably talk to you about today is how we go about negotiating our identities and how we sometimes do so unknowingly. And sometimes we do it purposefully and manipulate the identities in terms of the context that we're in. Mm. So that's, uh, that was probably my mindset when I wrote that to you, <laughs> that um, I'm always in the process of trying to understand how who we are impacts and affects what we do and how we approach the world we live in. Well, the who we are question is a really big one. Do, do we is. know? Do, do, is there a way for us to, to find out who we are? I think that this is a very common question that we encounter in Canadian society. Yes. It's something that we often ask our students, our colleagues, we're curious about one another, where we come from. Um, sometimes it focuses on our heritage, our ethnic heritage. And so it's a question that I think many of us are familiar with. I'm definitely familiar with it. It has shaped the choices that I've made personally and professionally in my life in terms of who I am and how I got to where I am today. But it's not a question that's finite. Right. And there's lots of discussion about this, as you say, especially in Canada, about these questions of where are you from, which in the ELT community is very common or some Absolutely. form or a paraphrase of that question in our classes. Mm -hmm. Of course, within reason, I think it's probably fine to ask someone where they are from. But with this multicultural age and this identity that we're going to talk about today, maybe asking where someone is local is a better question. Well, I think locality is extremely contextualized and locality, mm. as I saw in my own research and as I experience here, uh, also as a recent um, move to Toronto from Alberta, um, locality does imply a geographic destination, but it's also about our mindset and I think how it has been shaped and where we locate ourselves uh, in relation to, again, the work that we do, either professionally or personally, in the relationships that we have. Do you think your interest in the topic of identity led you to a career in ELT? Oh, absolutely. I could probably pinpoint the moment that I knew I was going to enter this um, area. I, I am uh, the eldest of four daughters of a family of immigrants. My mother and father immigrated from Croatia in their mm -hmm. 20s, very young. 
without wow. benefit of the language. So at that time when they came to Canada, they didn't really have access to ESL classes to further training. So I, like many, grew up in a household where at home we spoke Croatian, we spoke our heritage language, I went to Croatian school, and English was really reserved for schooling, formal schooling. So I grew up in a very bicultural um, household, and as the eldest, I was also keenly responsible in helping my parents when needed with their language skills. And they progressed at different rates. My mother worked with a lot of native English speakers, so her English language ability progressed much more quickly than my father, who worked with a number of Italian immigrants. So they uh -huh. developed a little bit differently. And my mom was also always very keen on finding the passion that we all had as uh, as daughters and our skill set. And I'm not sure when, but she identified, I think, education as an area that I would probably fare well in. So she also had a great habit of finding volunteer jobs for us, <laughs> uh, according to our skill nice. set. So I came home one day from university where I had already decided to study languages. I was studying Spanish and French. I wanted to study Russian. And at that point, I wanted to be an interpreter. I always wanted to work mm. for the United Nations as an interpreter. Oh, wow. And nice. I, yes. Um, and I wanted, um, I was also enrolled in linguistics courses. So I was already academically focused in this area of the role of language in society. And she found a volunteer job for me in a local neighborhood organization that needed volunteers to help tutor in link classes. And so I went and- um, So right from the get-go, you were right in this. Right, right in it before I graduated from university. And I remember coming and feeling very at home and at ease. And I was surrounded by people that were familiar to me because these were experiences that I grew up having right. uh, in my household, in my family. And I came home and knew that um, I wanted to engage in this type of work of English language teaching. Um, I didn't have the I couldn't deal with some of the pressure of interpretation, and that was a very competitive market at that time. Okay. Um, and decided to go down the path of education. I mean, I think a lot of us have that a very similar um, story in terms of why we got into the field. Hopefully, at the very least, a, very, a curiosity about other people and about other cultures and identities, and at the very core, hopefully, languages. Just a quick follow up: mm -hmm. what? What is Croatian school like in Alberta? Oh my goodness. Uh, it's still very strong. So it's connected to the Croatian Catholic Church. Okay. And when I started, we started, I believe, um, oh my goodness, maybe when I was in grade four. Okay. Grade four, probably even younger. And it used to be on Friday nights. So it used to be a combination of language class, folklore dancing, um, catechism because it was connected to the church. So wow. it would prepare us for our sacraments. Of course. So a little bit of everything. So Friday nights were, were okay. It became 
not okay when it was changed to Saturday mornings and it <laughs> interfered with our cartoon time. Of course. Uh, motivation. <laughs> motivation dropped. There'd be a lot of um, arguing and stubbornness every Saturday morning. Um, and my father would have to bribe us really with everything from donuts to um, uh, Slurpees or slushies okay. or um just something to get us going and saturday morning education still doesn't work i don't think that's yeah that's right and it was taught sometimes by um those who were teachers in croatia uh or those who were not so they imported a lot of grammar books a lot of materials from croatia uh targeted focus on grammar lots of speaking singing poetry. Wow. Um, oh my goodness. Sometimes Sunday afternoons, my father would ask me to write a story or an essay. And I just thought this was so unfair, <laughs> so outrageous to, to make me do this on a Sunday afternoon. Um, but looking but back now, is it still unfair? Looking back? Absolutely not. Okay. I think for myself and my sisters, it opened up a lot of doors for us and the ability to be bilingual um and in the case of of um uh, other sisters multilingual it's it's crucial i would advocate it and later in my teacher training courses i worked a lot with heritage language teachers in alberta uh, and those are my favorite courses and favorite teachers to work with because i represented the students that they were teaching so i i understood the struggles of a Saturday morning class <laughs> and how to try to make those language lessons engaging and interactive. If you've been in this industry long enough, I think we all understand Saturday mornings from the teaching perspective and at least maybe from the student perspective as well, but we've all been there and mm -hmm. it is what it is. But if you're going to do it, you might as well do it as well as you can, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, yes. And we, I still have some of those books. Okay. With me. Oh. I still have some of those books and I treasure them and it brings back um, very strong memories because it has infused my entire life with this love of culture and uh, respect for your heritage and uh, from the roots. And not to make presumptions, but I'm assuming that that feeling brought you to the topic of your thesis and venturing over to the Balkan region and to Kosovo and to engage with all that you did there. And I'm very excited to have you here to tell this story because I, I love it. And it's, it's really, really fascinating. I think it's um, not only one that people need to hear, but one that applies today um, still. So why don't we get into, into your study, into your research, and just kind of tell us what you did uh, in Kosovo. Well, it's a very long story, so feel free to interrupt me at any time and move sure. me along. Okay. <laughs> but it's um, it's interesting because I I reread my thesis and I realized how um, it's it's a piece of work that is imbued with emotion. It's a it's very emotional and personal to me. Um, because it, it came about at a, a time of great personal loss in my family after we had lost my father in 2001. 
and I had uh, just begun graduate work, graduate studies in comparative and international education. And education was the key. That was, I think, the motivating factor for my parents in their uh, immigration journey. And in so many discussions around the table and debates and uh, whether our voices were raised or not as we were each defending our own viewpoints on some topic, I had a very keen awareness that education was the key to uh, democracy building and to understanding society. So after I finished my coursework, I was actually focusing on immigrant youth from the former Yugoslavia. And I was interested in their process of negotiating identity because I wanted to know, um, was it similar to mine growing up in an immigrant family? And this was about, I joined, I believe in the third year of the project. I was on the project from 2004 to 2006. And I was asked to join by one of the um, project leaders to join them initially for six months to help them do some in-service teacher training with the Kosovar Serb minority group. Okay. They had been engaged in a lot of teacher training. They were, um, this project was in charge of in-service teacher training. So those that were already in education teaching and giving professional development around learner-centered instruction. Mm. And so they had by this time, I think, trained close to 70% of the Kosovar Albanian educators, but they were having difficulty um, setting up training with the Serb minority population. And, okay. and uh, this professor thought that with my, my background, um, my access to the language, that I might have some benefit in joining the project and helping them engage in this type of training. So it started initially as six months and the first week on the ground, it turned into eight months. Wow. And then it very quickly turned into a two year project where oh. I was one of the only Canadian consultants okay. um, that lived there full time. And just for a little bit of context here. So this was 2004, 2005. So roughly, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on the dates, but about six or seven years after the completion of the war in Kosovo. So uh, you really were on, on the grassroots and the ground level of, of the education movement, let's say, in, in post-war post Kosovo. Yes. So this was absolutely a post-conflict situation. Um, the NATO campaign ended in um, the late 1990s, 99. Um, so when the project began, yes, it was within a five-year period. So okay. when I joined, absolutely, the the um, the UN presence was very strong. Um, we dealt with a lot of a lot of security incidents and situations. In fact, I my initial uh, journey over was delayed by a few months because there had been a bombing in northern Kosovo. Mm. So the university suspended our international travel until um, the unrest settled. And definitely it was something that I was questioned about, not only by family and friends, but by colleagues in terms of 
what was I thinking? Why would I choose to go to a post-conflict situation? At that point, it was rated as one of the most dangerous places in the world. Um, but it, it actually directly, I think, links back to the loss that I faced personally at the loss of our father. And it was in some way a reason for me to go and situate myself elsewhere. During, had you been to the region previously? I had been to Croatia several times with my family, but not to Kosovo and Serbia. Um, so I only knew what people told me, and I had a, a very short introduction beforehand. But what intrigued me, and I think what pulled me, was I felt like this was a very rare opportunity to have a direct impact on educational development, to be, to be at the root, to be in a situation that's post-conflict um, and look at the reconstruction of an educational system. That's something that um, I don't think anybody waits for and hopes for, but I saw it as a very unique opportunity to go and have a practical impact on something that was ingrained within my family. Right. Perhaps you can walk us through the goal of the project. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then, I mean, I think some of the challenges are quite obvious, but um, maybe some of them are more subtle and maybe some of the challenges in achieving that goal that a lot of people maybe don't know. So the goal of the project, the, I, the Canadians, so CETA was given the opportunity to work with in-service teacher uh, development. Other countries and organizations had other sectors of the, the um, education sector. So our project was really to work with teachers uh, and provide them with opportunities for in-service teacher development. Here, it would be professional development that many teachers engage in on a regular basis. But there, that tradition was not very common. And the belief was that we would move the educational system of what at that time was considered very classic, traditional methodology, um, lecturing, rote memorization, to more learner-centered instruction. And, and the goal was to work with both the Kosovar Albanians and the Kosovar Serbs. That was, that was the majority of the project. Other parts of the project were on faculty development at the University of Pristina, some senior leadership uh, development with uh, key stakeholders and key leaders uh, in the Ministry of Education, at the university level, at the dean level, for example. Um, and then there was some work to be done with the student associations at the university. What for us would be perhaps the student associations connected to um, undergraduate programs. But in Kosovo, the associations were very political. Everything was very political and tied to political affiliations. And there was also some work that I was asked to do on gender initiatives at the ministry. Um, so that was the primary goal of the project. And this three-year project was extended for an additional three years. 
and became a regional project. So an office was opened up in Belgrade and Serbia to work with regional school administration offices um, around Serbia on professional development initiatives. So helping uh, PD advisors essentially in each school district, helping them execute professional development plans within their schools. And then there was a smaller office opened up in Montenegro to do uh, similar work. So a three-year project extended to six years. And at that time, that was uh, very unique for CETA because they usually didn't have projects that were of that length. Was the idea to have a, or to develop a one um, curriculum or one method or one approach or one set of materials to use in, in this education system that was being built at the time. And obviously with that idea and the situation in the region at the time, you can understand why that might be an impossible goal. No, we, we worked with educators at all levels and across all subject areas. So whether they were science teachers or language teachers or um, primary school teachers, the goal was to help them develop their own curriculum but to look at learner-centered instruction and strategies. So we initially started with a five-day training of teachers, and then we developed a train the trainers program because sustainability was an important initiative in the project with the understanding that we would not be there. So as we developed, we each also developed a local partner who co-trained with us or co-facilitated would develop those skills and then later they would take on the role of primary facilitator or trainer and we would then coach and mentor and that's how that model was built so that there would be sustainability once we pulled out and left the area so that's also um a disadvantage of many develop, international development projects is that they're often short-term expecting a high impact, but they may lack any sustainability. They may lack any um, initiatives embedded within the project to ensure that, that the impact of the project is long-term. Okay. So what can, what, what can initiatives like that do to make sure, or as best they can, to ensure that those initiatives Um, are maintained? So we worked very closely in collaboration with our local educators. So they were involved in the planning process. They they sat on the steering committee for the project. Um, There was a lot of conversation, and I would say during my time with my uh, fellow Canadians, our Our local educators and our colleagues were always involved from the process of development to co-facilitation, co-training, part of the feedback cycle every evening. So that is very important. And then the train the trainer model, I think had a great impact, uh, positive effect because they could then develop within their own schools, within their own school districts, and they were recognized as such by the local Ministry of Education. All right. We were talking the other day, and you mentioned that, well, 
when when I, I strongly believe this and I guess some people don't, but I think, you know, language and culture slash identity are inextricably linked, right? I don't know that we can separate them. Um, so in regions such as this, where there are different ethnicities, there is different language, there are different cultures. Um, and you mentioned the other day that even you, you, you said you had to change your own identity sometimes when doing trainings with different, different groups. So how did the, the identity or the, the language of the region impact the work that you, you, were, you were there to do? It infused the whole project. It's it was impossible to do this work without understanding the political implications of the region and of the work we were doing. So, as I mentioned to you earlier, even for myself, um, I developed a skill I never knew that I needed, or I never knew that I had, where I often manipulated. Uh, how I, how I self-identified in order to work with um, the people that I had to work with. And I found it very interesting. And it started off first just as um, a comment one evening at, uh, during a feedback session where one of my co-trainers said to me, uh, you need to start acting more Canadian. Mm. And I was a bit taken aback and I thought, what, what do you mean by this right. more Canadian? And when we unpacked it, what they were saying to me is you need to be more neutral. We are going to deliver these trainings in English. There's an interpreter. Um, we have to be neutral in this whole situation. And I beg to differ. And I, I don't think that neutrality is possible when we're engaging in education, when we're engaging in language training. Um, I was going to ask you, what, what does neutral, what would neutral, I agree with you, what would neutral look like if someone says we need to be more neutral or to be neutral? I don't know what that means and how that would even be achieved. Nor did I really. And it was, and I found out what happened is at this point in the project, as I mentioned, um, there had been great success with the Kosovar Albanian group and they make up uh, the large largest part of the population there. I think at that time it was 70 to 80 percent of the population. I think it's higher than that now, isn't it? It's higher than that. And at that time it was about approximately five percent of the population um, was Kosovar Serb. And so I don't have a background in the Albanian language. So I did rely heavily on my local colleagues and interpreters. But depending on the age demographic in that uh, room with the educators we were working with, many of them had been taught bilingually. They grew up in a system where Serbian was the primary language of instruction in school. So they themselves were bilingual or, or at least um, able to communicate in both languages. So knowing that I had a Croatian background and uh, Serbo-Croatian and the dialectal differences around that, and there's a lot of contention around whether these are separate languages or dialects of one. Uh, so that we can talk about in a different episode. <laughs> sure. Um, 
uh, also a topic heavily debated in my family, but um, I'm sure for many of the educators, I think it was it was a personal way to reach out and make a personal connection. And it made me feel comfortable um, being able to speak to them. And the topics always started with, where are you from? Where are your parents from? Um, how did you how did you learn Croatian and just wanting to know those experiences? And with perhaps some of my co-trainers, this ability to make a connection without the use of an interpreter um, possibly made them feel uncomfortable. And right. perhaps uh, traversed the boundary of neutrality. Interesting. Where, where I was no longer impartial. I was making these personal connections. And I think like in many situations, you want to know the story of the people that you're working with, that you're engaged mm -hmm. with. And um, some didn't want to engage. And with others, even later, we, we became extremely friendly and collegial. And every time they would stop by the office, exchange a few words, and get to know each other a little bit more each time. That's good. That's good. It's it's interesting about you know looking at human nature and just even in a situation where you were there as a team to try to work among a group of people that had differences, and then there are even differences among the team that, and that's just a human quality. I think it's it's interesting to see. Yeah. And absolutely. the question we started at, at the top of the show, we asked you know I asked you you know the question where are you from, and that's just. A common question. I don't know if it's a bad question. I think it's just how and when it's asked, like like any question as well, right? And perhaps what the intention is. So as you mentioned, mm -hmm. how I had to manipulate and negotiate. Yes. So perhaps for some of my Canadian colleagues, I needed to be more Canadian, more neutral. Um, it's interesting. But for some of my Albanian colleagues, they saw me as an ally because historically they believed Albanians and Croats were allies against uh, the Serbs. And then when I would work with some of the, the Serbian educators, they would say Croats and uh, Serbs were always allies together against other ethnic minorities. And I found this fascinating that whatever group I was in, somehow there was a need to make an alliance, a connection, but it was always against the other. <laughs> It wasn't, there was never this feeling of we're in all of this, we're interconnected. It was, uh, we have to, we have to make this alliance, but there's always, it's always in opposition to another group. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, how, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same type mm -hmm. of idea. And I remember reading and I've used this article in a class many, many times. And I think I forget the name of the article, but it's from 1998. And they draw this parallel on identity and and when identity is convenient and when it's advantageous. And they use Ben Johnson as one of the examples. Obviously, Canadian sprinter, won, the first Canadian sprinter to win a gold medal at the Olympics. And he was this Canadian hero. And then he tested positive for steroids, and now he's the Jamaican doper. And right. how identity can be flipped depending on the narrative that we want to fit it into. Right, in the context. And it's interesting because I was reading um, 
uh, one of the transcripts of one of my research participants, and he he said, you know, th this ability to to negotiate. Um, I, I'll try not to use the word manipulate because it has negative connotations, but this ability to negotiate identity, he said, it, he said as an educator, it was, it was very difficult because he ethnically identified as an Albanian. In the work he did with us, he had to use the language of English, which was uh, one of the official languages under the UN administration. And he said, but, but who does that make me? What am I? Mm. I'm neither here nor there. I'm, I'm not supposed to be ethnically Albanian. Uh, Kosovar Albanian, he said, is just a name. That's a category. But I'm not a Kosovar because Kosovo doesn't have any political status. It doesn't exist yet. So Powerful. Very powerful. So, who are you in this case? How do you, how do you um, negotiate this space? And in many of my conversations and through the research, what struck me a lot as well is that I wasn't the only one negotiating and understanding that um, perhaps in the workplace, in a professional setting, as some of them said, working with internationals. So these would be English speaking internationals from whichever country uh, we came from but working with internationals some of them said we knew and we know how you want us to think and what you want us to oh. believe let's take a quick break we'll be right back developing as a teacher isn't easy it's even more challenging doing it solo if you are looking to join a passionate community of teachers who love to learn, then the Learn Your English teaching membership can help. The Learn Your English membership allows teachers to develop what they want when they want to through monthly challenges, webinars, reflection tasks, and application to your individual teaching context, the membership brings like-minded people together from all around the world. If you love improving and taking risks in education, then join their growing community of teaching professionals today. Find out how at learnyourenglish.net backslash memberships. Hi, everyone. My name is Bhavna, and I come from Nepal. You are listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Namaskar, sabai zanalai. Mero naam Bhavna ho, ra ma Nepali hoon. Tapai haru sundai hununcha, Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. So these would be English-speaking internationals from whichever country uh, we came from, but working with internationals, some of them said, we knew and we know how you want us to think and what you want us to oh. believe. Hmm. And that's very interesting. That is very interesting because you would also hear that sometimes through interpretation. So we didn't have professional grade interpreters. We had interpreters who were highly proficient in the English language. Um, but even though I didn't grow up with the language of pedagogy and methodology in my home, those, mm -hmm. <laughs> that wasn't vocabulary. Um, I, I hope not. No, no, you know, we, we didn't talk <laughs> about that at the kitchen table. So I didn't 
necessarily have that. I learned that vocabulary later in context. Um, but it was fascinating to me sometimes also when I would listen to an interpreter and a concept or an idea and how it would be explained and how it might be explained or the examples that would be given that would be laden with value, with judgment, with, with ideas that were not neutral. So again, the idea mm. of speaking the English language and using interpretation being a neutral setting is also faulty logic. Interesting. Totally agree. Completely agree. At, again, at, at the beginning of the show, we talked about your experience with Croatian school. Mm -hmm. And we can in insert nationality or culture here, and we have a school probably for that, right? Um, and and you, as again, we talked earlier, you said that you noticed shadow schools being developed throughout the area um, so that, if I'm interpreting it right, that parents could have their kids go to these types of schools and learn learn culture and learn what they want them to learn whether it be Croatian school or Albanian school or Canadian school, whatever that would be. Um, these, not shadow schools, but these types of, cult I, don't, I don't know if cultural school is the right term, but schools where- Or a heritage where language school in the Canadian heritage context. Heritage language in the Canadian yeah. context. There's a, it can be controversial, but I think it's a really important part of society, isn't it? It is. And I'm not sure if it's controversial. It's- um... It's conflicting. It's confusing. So parents often want their children to know the language of their culture, their, of their family, of their heritage, because this also maintains some of the values, some of the beliefs, some of the customs and the tradition. But they also want their children to be successful in school. And many, many conversations I would have around bilingualism and multilingualism is whether or not it positively or negatively impacts the child going through school and when do you introduce it and does this confuse them? So there, there is research out there to show its great benefit, but it is very difficult, I would imagine, and even speaking to my mom many times over the years of wanting your child to be successful you you came to this country for opportunities and in my family um, we took those opportunities we all have advanced degrees and are all professional women um, so there's a lot for my parents to be proud of but they did struggle with that wanting to maintain the connection to their heritage to their culture to their language and right and we have humorous incidents too throughout of where um, words are are changed, are shaped, are formed, are anglicized, and yes. uh, and we grow up using certain vocabulary words. Let's say in the Canadian context that don't actually exist in the Croatian language. So then when we go to talk to our cousins <laughs> or grandparents or relatives, and they have this quizzical look on their face, like what? Yeah. I don't understand what you're talking about. Um, well, language is supposed to be fun at the core, right? So that's, <laughs> that, it changes, and that's what it does. Why it language does learning change. never stops because language changes, of course, uh, and evolves all the time. It does. Um, I I said earlier that language and culture and identity maybe cannot be divided. Um, however, I might I'm going to contradict myself 
or at least in terms of a question here. So the next part I want to ask you is how does identity impact language or as a, a byproduct of that impact language learning? And in the Western context or in Canada, you know, we, we, we as teachers, we strive, we desire, we want multicultural classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, we love the diversity, generally speaking. We, we want what that brings to our classroom. But in, in the context of your study and what we're talking about, how, how do we navigate or how does identity and language impact a learning environment when maybe that diversity isn't necessarily welcomed? Yeah, that's a very complex question. And, and the work that I did in Kosovo, especially the academic work, um, really looked at trying to describe and research um, <clears throat> the lived experience of, of educators who had grown up or had attended school in a system that did not promote diversity at its core. So for the educators that I interviewed in my study, for example, they had gone through school and some of them, excuse me, had um, even taught in the shadow or parallel system. So this is um, just a, a side note, this is a system that took place largely in the 90s after, um, I believe after 1992, where there was uh, a nonviolent separatist movement that set up a shadow or parallel system in health and education that ran in parallel to uh, the dominant uh, system that was being run by the Serbian government. So schooling took place in homes, in shops, in secret locations with very small groups of students uh, by teachers or sometimes um, adults who wanted to teach, much like in a heritage language system. They Mm -hmm. perhaps were not teachers by trade. But very much off the grid and in secret, right? Uh, completely off the grid, very dangerous, uh, extremely precarious situation. And this showed how important teaching in the heritage language was, regardless of what it was. Um, and in this system is where many of my colleagues also learned the English language. And they didn't have resources. There wasn't curriculum. Um, sometimes there were mattresses instead of chairs or, or um, pieces of wood instead of desks. So these were not ideal situations, but this is, this is how an entire generation was educated. And I think at the core of that is identity and the need and the desire to be educated in one's own language. So that informed a lot of the the academic work, but if we take it even to our current context in many English language programs, whether they're link programs or ESL, EAP programs, we, English is still the tool that we use and it's the tool that that gives students the opportunity to access economic opportunities, perhaps political opportunities, um, 
but it's not a impartial tool. So the students that come into our program are also in different areas, different spots of this continuum of identity formation. Um, if we have refugee students or students who also have just come from post-conflict or war-torn places, that's embedded in how they think, how they view the world. Uh, or we have some that have been here for a long time and have returned to school to upgrade their skills, um, to access perhaps other programming or, or simply to um, engage in a social atmosphere. Right. But at the root of all of this is the identity that the students bring, um, or I should say identities, the multiple acts of identification. And it, as I said, it, because it's not neutral, we also have to, from the teacher perspective, recognize this, um, welcome it, understand it, and negotiate it ourselves. So you beat me to it because that was my next point. Um, is that flipping that over? Enough without goes without saying that obviously as teachers, I mean, we're not necessarily talking about students per se, but just people. So teachers obviously have multiple identities as well. How does that, or how does a, a let's say a teacher's identity or multitude of identities impact how that person teaches? If I usually say if at all, but of course we know that it does. Well, I think it impacts everything. I, I, I know from my own teaching, it impacted everything from lesson design um, to curriculum, the hidden curriculum, considering um, the voices that are heard, not heard, represented, not represented. What's the hidden curriculum? So the hidden curriculum would really be... Um, an examination of who or what is not represented in what we teach. So what values, what judgments do we put in in our curriculum framework? Um, what, is, what is the purpose? What readings do you choose? What does that, everything that we do impacts um, impacts who we are, impacts how we view ourselves as individuals, as a society, but also how we are influencing our students to view us and view others. So it could be a reading that um, a teacher may think is very neutral, but if you look at the reading, you need to think about how, how neutral is it? Why have you chosen that reading? Is it to teach certain reading strategies? But what is the content in that reading? What is the, the message? Is it influencing um, a political view, an economic view, an environmental view? So your lesson design, the curriculum framework, how you approach students in class, we have students that uh, may choose not to talk about their experiences in the past. They are traumatic, they are personal. Um, but we also have students who may find your classroom a safe space. 
and decide at some point during your lesson, your time together, that they want to share something from the past. And it may be traumatic, it may be negative, but they have made a decision to share, to use the language, to negotiate this, to express themselves, I think also needs to be given space. Um, I think we need to be careful about about these situations where we might wonder what, how it will impact others and, and really think about, uh, I would imagine just what does it take for that student to be in a space to be able to share? Right. Um, but also understanding uh, that our classrooms sometimes are a mirror of the world. Oh. And this doesn't stop at the elevator or at the classroom door. And we are often in situations where students come to a classroom and they may be faced with individuals that they would rather not be seated next to or that they escaped from or whatever the, the situation may be. Um, and that's very challenging for a teacher. I think this dispels that I don't even know if it's a myth, but this idea that um, when one moves locations geographically to a new country, a new city, a new area, that they leave behind whatever experiences that they've had with them. Of course, that's not true. They may not talk about it. They may not choose to communicate that or share it with, with us, but those experiences very much come with them. And in my experience, I'm sure the same for you, maybe for lots of teachers. I've, the, I've never had a, a, a super tension-filled experience in my classroom, but any kind of debate or, what do we say, um, lively conversation mm -hmm. uh, in class has very rarely been between two, uh, quote-unquote, distinct cultures. It has been between intracultural mm -hmm. um, exchanges, mm -hmm. which I think speaks to exactly what, what you're referring to, and that maybe that is... Um, one of the the factors that we as teachers need to consider when creating these safe spaces in our classrooms as well. I would agree. In my role as an administrator here and elsewhere, I would say I have dealt with my fair share of intercultural conflict, but overwhelmingly the conflict, if it is culturally based, tends to be intracultural. Um, and that is something that is also very very challenging and difficult to navigate. I had it, I remember in my very first experience teaching a link class, very first night, I, I had two experiences in this program, but this first one, um, I started teaching in 1998, which was still at the height of the Balkan Wars. And I walked into the classroom and I simply wrote my full name on the board. And I hadn't written up the agenda yet and I hadn't unpacked my photocopies yet. And a student um, got up and said to me, I'm sorry, but you can't be my teacher. Hmm. I, and she said, I left my country to get away from people like you. Oh, wow. Um, 
and that was very shocking to me. And this was my, my first experience. And, and it was very important. I felt that the student felt safe. And at that point, that psychological safety wasn't in my classroom yet. The student didn't know who I was, where, what my background was, um, that I, I was born in Canada, but it, those experiences were extremely delicate extremely fresh. And then later that semester, I taught a different level. And I remember going to uh, the front of the classroom, introducing myself, and an older gentleman stood up and said, I need another teacher. You need to give me another teacher. Why is that? In my country, women don't teach men. Mm. I cannot learn from you. So in the first instance, there was an ethnic difference that impacted the safety of the student. In the second instance, it was based on gender. So these types of experiences, they weren't isolated. They, they've continued throughout my teaching in, in different situations and um, being able to navigate and negotiate that and understand what that means. And at what point then, um, does it become the responsibility for us to to talk about it with our students but also establish a safe space that learning can continue what advice do you have for and we don't want to put everything on the teacher because this is also probably an administrative topic as well and just as a as a whole facility but what advice do you have for navigating and experiencing those instances that will ultimately arise with probably every teacher if we teach in diverse groups of, of students? I think whether it's from the teaching learning perspective or the management perspective, communication is key. And trying to open a discourse, trying to unpack, listen, active listening, um, trying to explain and perhaps the current context, the current expectations, um, and listen. And I think it's very important for us to uh, open the communication through, through dialogue, through discourse. But listening really depends on whether or not um, the student is in a space to be able to, to hear, for example. But the same same, I would say, is on the administrative side, on the teaching side. Um, it, it's very difficult sometimes to just sit quietly and listen mm -hmm. before making any decisions or making any judgments or expectations. Listen to understand, right? Not to respond. Yes. It's challenging. <laughs> it's, it is. How long um you're put into it um with with expectations yeah definitely so extremely intricate extremely complex and applicable to every context because if we're talking about diversity i think generally speaking we think about diversity as being oh you're from canada and i'm from france right um but with ethnicities and you mentioned dialects earlier and there's i i i looked up a couple of them and in every country has dozens at the minimum of different ethnicities within them so mm -hmm. um a teacher in any country can take from this 
I think, and apply it to their own context, which is what we're trying to do with with the show and with the company, because um, this this does apply to to everywhere in the world. Um, mm-hmm. We were chatting earlier also about if it's our job as teachers to teach the language, to teach content, to teach culture. But again, I don't think that's a decision. I think you said that there is no such thing as neutrality in teaching. And even if I try to decide not to teach topic X, Y, and Z, I'm not going to talk about politics in my class. I'm not going to. But my biases internally kind of make that decision for me, don't they? They do. I mean, it's also, we tend not to talk about um, politics. But for example, in my work in Kosovo, what was very interesting to me is you knew the political affiliation of everybody you worked with. So principals, deans, faculty members. So something that um, was difficult for us at times is if a new minister of education came in or a new dean or whoever it was that held some position of authority and power, you knew which political party they were affiliated with. And often what would happen in the region is the new principal coming in didn't believe in PD initiatives. He thought that was too um, left-leaning. Oh, okay. So then you had to start again, establish a connection, um, work on relationship building, try to find out what the... um, goals were and that was something very different to work in a system where politics um, was connected to position and that people could gain or lose jobs based on which political party they were a part of Um, but here you would be hard pressed to identify political parties of your colleagues um, or or who yeah how they voted or whatnot. Um, but perhaps in the classroom, we have students where politics is a very important conversational piece. Um, it's something that's talked about over coffee every day. And so when they mm-hmm. come into the classroom, they may want to engage in the same type of discourse and dialogue. Um, sure. I mean, it it begs the question because I always say doing one of the extremes is always very easy. It's easy to do 100% of something or 0% of something. The balance, finding an appropriate balance is the difficult part. And there are some, less so now, but there are still some, I think, who say our job is to teach language and that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think we can separate those. So how do we, how do we enable those? How do we maintain, on the one hand, a safe space while also a lot giving our students room to have those discussions in a classroom? Ah, well, that's the complex question. How do we do that? Um, I think there has to be some comfort with ambiguity, with with tension, with difficult conversations and negotiating that. And I feel this is life. And and whether you're risk averse, um, whether you you enjoy these types of conversations. There are so many factors that play into this. Mm, um, good. And no, and I was going to say, and also the level of language that we're dealing with proficiency level and 
perhaps understanding at times, okay, maybe higher level students will have more targeted vocabulary to use to express their, their thoughts and their opinions and understanding that lower level students are dealing with a, a broader vocabulary base, more general, and perhaps the words that they choose are not the words that are, are intended. Sure, sure. But that might even be an opportunity to fill some of those gaps at the same time. A teachable moment. A teachable moment. I would argue, yes. And the time that we're living now, 2020, is ripe with teachable moments. And I was reading uh, an article from Time magazine the other day, and it has this quote that I found quite interesting from an Ohio State professor named Hassan Kwame Jeffries. And he's talking about the Black Lives Matter movement mm -hmm. and teachers and students and, and parents all kind of together. And the quote is this. Previously, you've had educators and parents saying, teach this, but not a sense of urgency coming from the kids because the kids don't know what they don't know. Now students, and not just black students, are applying the pressure. We haven't seen that before. And you know who's the most prepared to have these conversations? The students. We, we as teachers, project onto them our discomfort with these issues. So by the time they get to high school, they pick up on our, hey, let's not talk about that cue and signal. Part of what teachers have to do is help our students develop empathy in addition to pointing out what critical knowledge they need. And I thought that was a really interesting quote about Black Lives Matter in this case, but I think that applies to lots of different topics. Well, and if we're looking at the English language classroom as well. Our responsibility would be to teach our students the language to negotiate these complexities. Mm -hmm. um, so whether it's formal, non-formal, polite, impolite, um, different, uh, different phrases, different expressions that can be used to negotiate this. Register. Register, right. tone, um, uh, supersegmental properties in our, our language. I mean, I've always felt we're doing our students a disservice if we don't do that, because we can't live in this bubble where we think when they leave my classroom, they're not going to have these conversations. They will, because this is the world. So why not take advantage of the safe space? Yes. I mean, we have these conversations. If, if we have these conversations in faculty rooms and staff rooms and photocopy rooms. And our students already have them. They just might not be in English, but they already have them too. Right. Exactly. And this is, this is an opportunity for dialogue. And I think it's okay. Um, what I believe in sometimes what I also advocate is it is okay to live in a space of tension and of discomfort. Mm. Um, we need it. That's where dialogue can take place. That's where our judgments are challenged. Um, we do need that. And, and students, I think, as, as you mentioned from that article, have a voice and they have experiences, whether they are seven years old or 70 years old. When they come yes. to the classroom, there is an opinion. There's an experience, perhaps, behind that opinion that needs to be shared. 
as teachers sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, I'm sure everybody is a little bit of bringing your own implicit biases to the mm -hmm. first day of class. And you realize you're, just, you know, you're getting to know your students and student A is from this place and student B is from this place. And you kind of, oh, well, I shouldn't talk about this topic. And then usually, always, actually, I can, in my experience, pleasantly surprised that they're just people and they love to talk about pretty much anything and they can be respectful people to, to mm -hmm. others as well. So mm -hmm. um, that's another bias, I think, as teachers we bring in that usually is, is unfounded. Yeah, I would agree. I think, um, yeah, embracing the discomfort, embracing the tension sometimes, that's perhaps sometimes when the most um, unexpected learning can take place. Love it. And just as a quick final note here, it's been 13 years since you published your thesis, mm -hmm. um, Kosovo. What have you seen develop since then? Uh, what maybe still needs to happen? And maybe what can we take from your study and experience there that, that teachers listening can apply, or educators and students, everyone listening can apply to their context wherever they are? Well, 13 years later, I would say the struggle continues. Um, the political struggles continue. In 2008, Kosovo declared its independence from Serbia. A number of UN member states um, recognized this, not all of them. Some of them, in fact, uh, pulled out their recognition after the fact. In 2000. 13, we had the Brussels Agreement, um, where uh, officially Serbia didn't recognize or still doesn't recognize Kosovo as a sovereign state, right. but um, they agreed to a normalization of relations. Okay. So 13 years later, I've kept in touch with some of the research participants. Um, a lot of them continue to be involved in the education sector. I've often thought about what it would mean to perhaps go back and interview them again to see if any of their experiences and opinions changed. At that time, there was a lot of um, hope for the future, but it all hinged on the political status. Um, right. of the place, the locality. But I would actually be much more curious about the students who have gone through the system in the last 10 or 15 years um, and to look at a study that might examine how they negotiate identity. How do they identify? Um, is it as, um, is it along ethnic grounds? Is it on this at what I called living on the hyphen as a Kosovar Albanian or Kosovar Serb? Um, or do they have a broader sense of being a Kosovar, much like what we would call a Canadian? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? But what it shows, I think, for us in the current state and current situation is the ebbs and flows of this type of work where based on, I think, political leanings, um, societal occurrences that every society uh, is going to go through periods of greater harmony 
and greater strife and distress. And I think this is what we have been seeing on a global scale. Um, so for me, the biggest takeaway, if I think about this in terms of my current work and uh, the work that I did there is the world is much more equal than we realize. And the idea that there are countries or there are places that are better situated than other places um, might, that might be the case economically, um, perhaps even politically, but, but the fluid act of, of negotiating one's identity, I think as we've seen already really does depend on our lived experiences. It depends on our ability to dialogue, to communicate, um, and it does depend on, on locality. To say that I have a certain experience here in Toronto that equals the experiences I had in Calgary would be wrong. Even within this country, my professional and personal experiences shape how I view myself and how I view others. Well said. And if you're going to ask someone where they're from, be prepared to go grab a coffee and sit down and actually listen, right? I would ask more, not where are you from, but tell me about the journey of who you are now. What? Tell me about your journey. Love it. And let's leave it there and I will tell you that story another time. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> Anna Maria, thank you so much for joining us. This was fantastic. Thank you. I enjoyed uh, the conversation and the dialogue, and I hope we can pick it up again. We'll continue it for sure. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.